0: Well, let's, uh, let's pray together one more time. Father, thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you for the love that you have shown us. Father, we praise you and delight in you. And Lord, we just pray over these next few minutes as we uh, consider your word that you would speak to us, that you would help us to understand by your spirit, but also by the words that you have placed there for us for our edification, for our education, for our information, for our inspiration. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to go ahead and grab it and open it. Today's going to be a little different. We're not going to have as many verses on the screen because of the structure of how we're doing things. So let me encourage you just... Have a Bible. There's a, a, a pew Bible in front of you. You can use that. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm ambivalent about whether or not you should mark in that Bible. It's it's up to you. <laughs> um, but I also just want to say too, while you're turning there, for those of you guys working in in uh, Adventure Zone and in Kids Sunday School, thanks for for doing this. This was a treat uh, getting to see all these little stones. I was afraid that that these were out there in case I got boring that someone's going to start beaming me with this. And then someone else said, no, it's for when people start falling asleep, you can knock them in the back of the head. And no, mine says be kind. So that wouldn't be. So as we begin, we're so we're going to be in the book of John, chapter two through four. OK, but as you are turning there, I want us just to have a, a perspective a little bit about the word of God in, in Paul's second letter to Timothy. We get a beautiful reminder about the nature and the origin of Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3:16 to 17 Paul writes all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I think this is part Uh, this is, in part, why we spend so much time studying Scripture, why we spend so much time focusing on the Word of God. It is our textbook. It is our guide. It is our primary source of information about God, about His character, about His works, His will, the way He moves in the world. And as you know, over the last couple of months, we've been focusing on one specific book, in this case, the Gospel of John. And this is a book that, that uh, the breath of God inspired the Apostle John to write. Now, I don't believe the Holy Spirit dictated to, to John saying, John, write this and then write that and then write this. I don't think that's how the Spirit of God works. I think the Spirit basically said, John, I want you to write about these things. And I want you to use your personality, your perspective, your intelligence. But this is the message I want you to get across. And so we began several weeks ago by, by understanding John's stated purpose for his entire book. And this is what guides all of our understanding. Unfortunately, he put it at the end of the book. So we have to go to the end to, to, to come back to the beginning and really look. So John 20, 30 to 31, uh, he writes this. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, so this is John's perspective. This is the lens. This is the, really the focal point of, his, of everything he's writing. So after we grasped that, we, we went back to the beginning of the book and we began looking verse by verse, really, or section by section, trying to understand or expose or, or exposit the message of the text. And I got to tell you, my hope is that as I preach or that as Aramal and Andrew or or other guys that that preach here have the opportunity to preach, I I pray that that is our perspective, that it's not, not that we want you to know what we think, but we want you to know what the Word of God thinks. And so today, as we look at John's gospel, instead of going to the next part, Next week we're going to look at John chapter 5 and, and the things that Jesus does there. We're going to take a look back because I think John does something in these, in these couple of chapters just to point our attention to some very crucial and important things. And so we're going to look back over, uh, over chapters 2 through 4 and we're not going to look closely at it because we've already done that. We're going to sort of zoom out a little bit in order to gain a better perspective. In fact, so as I mentioned, if you have your copy of God's Word, it may be helpful to have that there. So you can mark your Bible if you'd like to. I, I know for me, I like to circle, I like to highlight, I like to underline. I like to bring things out in the text so that I can see the patterns that the, the gospel writers or the, the, the author of, of Scripture is, is, is helping us to understand. But one of the things, the first, and if you want to follow along in your outline, the, the, one of the, the important things that I think is, is there for us to understand is that John has seemed to structure these three chapters into what we might call a chiastic structure or a chiasm. And this is a common tool that the biblical writers use to highlight a point. Essentially, what the, the, the way a chiasm or a chiastic structure you know, might be visualized as sort of a sideways triangle. You can see that a little bit in your outline. The idea is that the first thing relates to the last thing, and then the second thing relates to the second to last thing, and the third thing, and all the way, they all kind of correspond with each other until they get to the center point. Now, I think, as I mentioned, I think John does that in these chapters, and so we're going to look real briefly at what John is doing there. Of course, as we, as we uh, read Scripture, we're reading sequentially. We're reading in order, typically. Right, So we're not going to study scripture first, but John kind of does some things to say, hey, here's something. And as we're going along, he's going to say something else that makes us think, oh, I heard that before. Let me go back. What is he getting at? And that's where we can see these patterns kind of coming together. So John gives us some linguistic clues to help us pay attention to what's happening here. And, and in this case, what he does is he begins and he ends with signs or miracles at Cana in Galilee. So the first, first, and we saw this several weeks ago, the first one is is the sign at Cana when Jesus changed the water to wine. If you remember, Jesus and his, and his disciples and his mom were at a wedding and, and the, the wedding party, they ran out of wine. And it was a multiple day wedding and they needed to have wine, otherwise it was a shame on the whole group. And so Jesus' mom says, hey Jesus, they have no wine. And he's like, so what? And so he turns to the servants and says... Do whatever he tells you. So Jesus tell, instructs the servants there to fill up these six water jars that were used for purification. Fill them up to the brim with water and take some, some of that liquid, some of the water, to the master of ceremonies. And somewhere in that process, Jesus changed the water to wine. So as we, as we kind of review, as we look back over these things that we've been studying, we're going uh, to kind of reflect on the setting, on the religious element that is addressed And the outcome or the result. So here the setting is a wedding in Galilee, in Cana. The religious element really, John points out that these jars, and they were big. They were about 30 gallons each. These jars were used for the the Jewish rite of purification. He points that out. In fact, that's not the only time that purification comes up in these chapters. But they, they would use it for washing their hands before coming to worship. They would use it for washing utensils before eating together. But then the result, we see that John, that John points out that after Jesus did this sign, his disciples believed in him. They understood that he was not just your average everyday rabbi, that he was someone different. In John chapter 2, verse 11, it says, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. If you remember in our study last week when we were looking at John chapter 4, we're going to see that in just a moment, that pericope or that little section ends with John 4.54. Now, this is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So notice John is not only saying, hey, Jesus did a sign in Cana and Galilee two times now. Pay attention to that. But he's also helping us see the movement you see, Jesus had been in Judea in the south, and he had come up to Galilee to change the water to wine. And then in the end, leading up to John chapter 4, he had been in the south again, and he came back to Galilee. So he, John wants us to see that Jesus is moving around, that he's, he's doing a lot of things. And we're going to really cover a lot of those things very briefly today. So let's look at the next thing. Let's look at the bottom or the end of the chiasm, and that is what we might call A prime or A apostrophe. The sign at Cana, healing the official son. We looked at this last week. You see, remember, Jesus had been in the south. He'd been in Samaria. He came up north and was ministering in Galilee for a few days. And this uh, political official in Capernaum, about 20 miles away, whose son was ill, kind of heard that Jesus was there and he's helpless. So he comes 20 miles away, compels Jesus, say, hey, please heal my son, and after jesus pushed back a little bit he then healed the 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 boy from a distance so let's again think about the setting again we're in cana in galilee in the region of galilee up north the religious element we don't have any specific religious elements mentioned except that jesus seems to push back on what is the root of our faith because he tells him he says you guys won't believe unless you see a sign And he wants them to really get to, it's not the signs that are important. The man says, basically, but the result of this, in spite of Jesus' healing, because Jesus healed, the man and his household believed. So that was the result. So now we have the beginning and end. We have the bookends of this little chiasm. So let's come to the next section. Jumping back to chapter 2, we have sort of what we might call letter B, clearing the temple. And we we find that really it's the suspicion of the Jews in chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. So after Jesus turned the water to wine, there was the the celebration of Passover. So he had to come back south to Jerusalem and he walks into the temple and he sees this cacophony of noise. People are selling stuff. they're, They're changing money. They're doing all these things that don't foster worship. And so Jesus turns over tables, drives out animals, basically wreaks havoc in the temple, telling them, you should not be doing this in my father's house. So we have this temple in Jerusalem, the religious element. We have the idea of worship, what true worship and the sacrifices mean. And and the result, what we see is that the Jewish leaders resisted. They pushed back. In fact, they said, so what sign are you going to show us, Jesus, that we should allow you to do this to our temple? And essentially he responded. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And he wasn't talking about the stone of the temple. He was talking about the flesh of his body, the temple of his body that he would be resurrected. So Jesus then, so he's in the south. He's with his people, with Jewish people who should have been looking for Messiah. And they kind of pushed back. They said, what? You're messing us up, Jesus. And Jesus moves on from there. So the next part of the, the chiasm We see in John chapter 4, verses 31 to 45, and that is the faith of the Samaritans. He's up north, in between Galilee and and Judea and Samaria. The Samaritans, if you remember, they were a, a, a mixed a people of mixed ethnicity they were part jewish and part assyrian and they had not only not only were they mixed in that way but they were mixed in their religious practices they had pulled in a little bit of judaism a little bit of assyrian idol worship and all these things and it and they just became a big mess and so jesus comes and he and he the people after something that happens the people there were hungry to hear Jesus preach and they compelled him to, to stick around for a couple of days to, to learn. So I want you to see this picture. I think the reason why John puts these two things kind of in parallel to each other is that the people who should have trusted Jesus, that should have been looking for him, rejected him. The people who were not necessarily looking for him, the people who had messed up worship, were hungry. They did receive him. They longed for what Jesus had to offer. So the setting, we have a town in Samaria. The religious element, Jesus is explaining to them the truth, true worship, what worshiping God should be like. And as a result, many in that town believed. Many in that town believed. So we have the outside The beginning and the end. We have the next one in. Now let's look in in the the ones right right around our middle thing. Because what Jesus does is he brack or not not Jesus, what John does, is he brackets his main point with two conversations. And I find this very, very fascinating. The first is this in, in John 3, 1 to 15, we see a conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee. This likely happened in Jerusalem, and he comes to Jesus at night. He wants to understand some things and begins to question him and say, Jesus, what about this and what about that? And, and so we have this setting at night, likely in Jerusalem, the, the religious element, we have a theological conversation over birth and life and faith and what all of that is entailed. And interestingly, the result, John leaves us hanging at the end of this conversation because... Jesus makes some final comments, and we never get a chance to hear from Nicodemus, at least not until the end of the book. So looking just in this little section, we have to conclude that Nicodemus is at least wondering, but he's not all the way to faith yet. He's not there. But then we have this other conversation, back up in Samaria, outside of Jerusalem, in Samaria between Galilee and Judea. Jesus has conversation with a Samaritan woman. And here, as we talked to a couple weeks ago, he defies so many cultural expectations by talking to a woman of a different background, but also of a sordid lifestyle. And yet she embraces Jesus. She, you know, they, they go back and forth and this is beautiful conversation. And eventually she comes to faith. She runs into town and says, Hey, everybody, Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. You contrast the the doubting of Nicodemus with the faith of the Samaritan woman. So, the setting you have this well in Samaria at midday, it's bright out. Nicodemus came at night, the woman is there in the middle of the day. The religious element Jesus talks about living water, he talks about worship, he talks about family. And the result is the woman believed and she told the whole town about Jesus. And that opened the door for him to have him to stay a couple of days with, with the people there. But see, all of this examination moving from the beginning to end and back and forth gets us to this central point And that is this, that salvation. And, and I think this is what, Jesus, what John is trying to get us to see. Salvation in Jesus, in the Son of God, in the bridegroom. John is communicating to us that it's all about Jesus, not in the worship practices. It's not in our birth lineage. It's not in all of us. It's in Jesus. Look at what it says. I know Rick read this a little bit ago, but he says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is John three sixteen to 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So right here in the middle of all these things, these conversations, these signs, these encounters with these drastically different groups of people, John sort of bookends all of that, all of this content right here in the middle And after John gives us these comments, in the next little section, we get to see an encounter between John the Baptist and his disciples over Jesus. And the whole point John is saying is, look at Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. I'm the groomsman. I'm the best man. It's about Jesus. Look at him. I'm glad his ministry is growing. But then if you look in your Bibles, John 3, 34 to 36, the center section concludes with this. For he... Whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. There's a clear argument here. Jesus is the one who came from God. Jesus speaks the words of God and has been given authority by God. Therefore, our response should be faith, which gets lived out in a life of obedience. So that central theme is there, and that central theme really talks all about salvation. talks about having salvation in Jesus Christ, but it sort of begs the question, and that being, what is salvation? What is salvation? What is all that? Well, let's look for a moment at what it's not. Because all of these stories, all of these encounters, if we want to use a fancy Bible word, all these pericopes really point to one thing, and that is salvation is only in Jesus. But here's what it's not in. First of all, it's not found in ritual purification. When Jesus changed the water to wine, he used vessels of purification. And basically, he took the, what would have been water for cleansing... Replaced it with wine, which we think, I believe symbolized his blood, the blood of the covenant that, all, that we, we get to see later on in, in, uh, in the Lord's Supper. But also when you think about how wine is used, wine is used in fellowship. So not, all, not only, I mean typically we're going to, if you're going to have a glass of wine with somebody, you're going to have it with people, right? Most often. And Jesus seems to be communicating this idea of fellowship together. So it's not found in ritual purification, not found in that that ritualistic washing. But secondly, it's not found in ritual sacrifices. Think about the, the encounter at the temple when all those animals were there. People were selling animals and doing all these things. And Jesus essentially replaced the temple. He replaced all of that with his body. So there's this challenge. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And yet Jesus seems to be communicating, I have replaced all of those sacrifices with myself. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that. And he says, for it is impossible for the blood of goats to take away sins. But Jesus has done it for us. It's not in ritual sacrifices. In the encounter with Nicodemus, we see that it's not in our first birth. Salvation is not found in who our parents are. Our our parents have a beautiful role in our lives, but their faith can't save us. They're they're there to instruct us. They're there to lead us, to show us the way to God. But Jesus, in the conversation with Nicodemus, clearly says, you must be born again, born from above, born new. Lay aside what you're... Your, your physical lineage for Jesus Christ. But next, we also see that salvation is not found in our activity. Now, think about this. In the, in the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well, here's this woman who had been married five times and now she was living in sin, as we would see in Scripture, living with someone else outside of being married to him. And she may have been entering in time and time again because culturally that's what a woman could do at that time. But for whatever reason, whether her husband's just rejected her or she was not living a, a, an upright lifestyle, whatever reason, she seemed to be going through the motions. And yet Jesus seems to be saying it's not in those motions. It's not in that activity. It's not in in your... it's it's. It, salvation cannot be achieved by working for it. But next, Jesus tells us that it's not in the location of worship, both in the in the conversation with the woman at the well, but also in the people of Samaria. He he clarifies, he helps them see that true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about the temple here or the tabernacle there or this high place or what. Jesus is the object of our worship. True worshipers, His true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Also, we, we learned last week it's not in our, our means. Salvation is not found in our means, in our wealth and our resources. We, we've been blessed in that way, and the political leader, he, he had resources, and yet he was helpless. He was powerless. We can't purchase our salvation with money or influence or power or authority. And ultimately, all of these things fall short. Ultimately, all of these things lead us to this one conclusion that salvation is only found in Jesus. It is only found in Jesus. The Apostle Paul, Peter, when he was tested in Acts 4.12, he said this, and, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And see, John has been using all of these encounters to communicate that. To, to communicate that salvation is only in Jesus and it's obtained by faith, by belief, by entrusting our lives to Him. And I think salvation kind of has this twofold element because often we, we look at it from the perspective of, well, we're saved from something. Right? We're saved from our sin, from our con- the consequences of our sin, from perishing. John 3 16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave us, his- that whoever believed in him will not perish. So we're saved from that perishing. But we're not only saved from something, we're saved to something else. We're saved into fellowship, into that relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, it, think through that. Imagine that. We've been invited. Into fellowship with the God of the universe. A lot of people say, well, God can't be known. He has revealed himself here. He has shown us. Oh, more rocks. He has shown us in his word. He said, hey, here's here's what I want you to know about me. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, he invites us into fellowship with him. He invites us to walk with him to pray with Him, to do life with Him. John three nineteen to 21 says this, And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out in God. Think about this. So Jesus comes in almost like a a beacon, like a light to our world, showing us what is true, what is right, what is just. And by his death, burial, and resurrection, by our lives being covered in his sacrifice... We then get to walk into the to step out of darkness, out of that shame of hiding our sin, out of that shame of of hiding our shortcomings. We get to walk into the light of his love, into that light of, of a relationship with him where there is no shame because our sin has been paid for and covered for eternity. But think about this, light also illumines. It reveals, it shows, it shows what needs to be changed in us. There's a sweet fellowship that we get to enjoy with God through Jesus in the light. Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, Out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what's more, not only do we get to see that the answer to what is salvation, that it's only in Jesus. We get to see that Jesus in these encounters, Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. You see, skeptics like to decry Christianity as a white man's faith. They want to say, oh, that's just for white people. But that couldn't be further from the truth because it, it, if you look globally, Caucasians are the minority of believers around the world. And beyond that, the majority of believers are women. Roughly 60% of all believers are women, which means, gentlemen, we've got to get with the program. So it is far from a religion for white men or white people. It is a faith for everyone, and I think we get to see that in these encounters. I know there's a lot of blanks there. You're thinking, oh, it's almost time. Don't worry about it. We'll get there. Because one of the things I think we see is that, first of all, Jesus is for the celebrating. He's at a wedding. He's showing up. He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm for you. So we get to see that Jesus are, are, is, is for those who are celebrating. But also Jesus is for the religious, the devout. When he replaced the temple with his body, he, he still wants true worship. He's just replacing the sacrifice with himself. But Jesus is for the outcast and the sinful. The woman at the well, whose life and life had been battered by sinful decisions, broken promises, was able to see new life and hope in Jesus. Jesus was for her. The Apostle Paul echoes this sentiment because ultimately, at some point in time, we have to recognize our sinfulness, our helplessness. In in uh, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So we all have to recognize that there's a bit of that woman at the well in us. But not only is Jesus for the celebrating, the religious, the outcast and sinful, but Jesus is for the faithful. I mean, think about this. John the Baptist was a good man, and he was the forerunner of Jesus. He was telling everybody, hey, Jesus is coming. You need to pay attention, prepare, get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. And yet he didn't waver. He didn't He doubted a little bit, but he he trusted. He was faithful. He was obedient to the very end. And I want to just encourage you. Some of us, we have testimonies um, like the woman at the well. And, and it might be summarized party animal to preacher. And we think, yay! That, I mean, that's uh, Jesus can save the worst of us if we might look at that. But some of us, if you're like me, you've grown up in the church. You don't have that profound testimony. And yet John the Baptist was like that. He was faithful and consistent and persisted to the very end. So I want to just encourage you. Your salvation is genuine, even if you didn't wander in sin in a great bad way. Trust, continue to be confident in the salvation that Jesus has for you. He's for the faithful. But Jesus is also for the powerful. Because with the political leader, we learn that, that he could take powerful people. He just has to make them a little bit weak first. Which is why we get to this next one. Jesus is also for the helpless because we have to recognize eventually it comes down to being helpless. I am in need. I'm a sinner in need of grace. So in the end, what we have to conclude, what I think we have to conclude is that Jesus is for you. And Jesus is for me. You know this well, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, as you look at these encounters with all of these people, as you look back on your life, how Jesus has encountered you, the people he's brought into your life, the challenges he's allowed you to face, the joys he's allowed you to experience have you responded to him and have you responded to him for who he is because a lot of people like to think of jesus as just a good teacher or a good man but john is clearly pointing out that jesus is that and more and that we need to come to the place where we receive and accept jesus for who he is the son of god who came to die in our place So have you responded to him by entrusting your eternity to him? But also, beloved, you know, I began by talking about scripture as a whole. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to encourage you when you come to scripture, when you study the word, when you read it, when you, you know, it's easy to just check off boxes. Okay, I did my Bible reading for today. Yay. I read my, our daily bread or, or whatever devotional thing you do. And, and that's great. I want to encourage you to do those things. But I also want to encourage you to read the word and let the word speak. It's so easy to come in with preconceptions. It's so easy to come in and say, oh, well, this doesn't mean that or that means this or Pastor Joel said that. Check what I'm saying with the word of God because I am fallible. But the word of God is not. See Jesus for who he is. Trust him. Follow him. Walk in the light of his love with him. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the way that John organized his gospel, that we might see things in a beautiful way, see that salvation is really found in no one else, in no other activity or encounter, but it's only in Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that you'd help us to walk confidently in that for those who have not yet trusted god i pray that you would give them the faith they need to believe and for those who are already yours god i pray that you'd help us to walk faithfully with you to joyfully dive into your word and read what your word reveals about you about how you're working in us and in the world help us we pray in Christ's name amen amen